John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 654.IS4316, certificate number 34332. The International Cable Protection Committee. The internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's, it's a series of tubes. You use the internet. I have never used the internet. Come on. I've used it once or twice. For porn. A hundred percent for porn. Yeah. No, that is that is one of the leading uses of the internet, but uh-huh. uh, but not in my office. In my no. office, it's mostly looking up baseball statistics and uh, epidemiological charts. Are you a Are you a sabermetrics guy? Yeah. Uh, just I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but I definitely <laughs> had a time in my youth when I was just laser focused on. Baseball statistics. And not baseball, but, you know, all sports statistics and how they were being done wrong and, you know, different kinds of analysis. That I was just fascinated. I've gone to baseball idea. games with you and you don't sit and score the game. I used to. I've, I've had to kind of, I've had to kind of break myself out of it because I can't really chat with the person I'm with because I'm always like, was that double play? Three, four, four five, you know. Yeah. I've, I've gone to games with friends that score the game and yeah, it's like, why am I here? Is it Ben Gibbard? Gibbard has scored games. Jason Finn scores games sometimes. I think they've both stopped doing it just because being a Mariners fan isn't that gratifying. I saw somebody say that uh, if the if the baseball season gets canceled, and obviously you're listening from a time when you know if it was or not, then that would be the best news ever for Mariners fans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the team will have its best year in recent memory if it doesn't have to play a single game. But uh, but. You do use the internet. I'm assuming that um, I'm just going to out you as it, an internet user. It's changed every facet of my life, but that's true of everyone in our era. And that is, uh, I think that is maybe the most salient point, right? We have arrived now at a place that even a few years ago, the internet still was was a developed nation phenomenon. It was a, um, it still felt kind of optional to doing business to... Everything smartphones you know, changed it. Smartphones. Did. If internet's a thing you have in your home that you can use or not, like a microwave, that's one thing. But if you have it on you at all time, like a set of keys, you know that's that that's the game changer. And it's still expanding around the world. Of course, there's not anywhere near as much internet activity in Africa or in Central Asia. But it's but you know those uh, those networks are expanding rapidly. 
and it, it we're now we've crossed the threshold where I think we we now have fifty percent of the world using the internet. Fifty percent of the people on on the planet are now internet active. That's interesting that it's uh, that there's still half of the human race that essentially never uses the internet. Yeah. Well, if you think about... They must be so happy. I know. But if you think about, I mean, whenever you read a statistic about how prevalent starvation still is in the world, you have to assume that anyone suffering from starvation is also not on the internet. Uh, maybe not in the in America. You know, a lot of gamers forgetting to eat. Well, I guess that's true. There are people, there are people in America that could have smartphones and also be suffering... From malnutrition, maybe not starvation. It's true. And I'm definitely not, that's not a welfare shaming joke. Right. Uh, But uh, I just know that uh, the internet keeps me, it's work online that makes me eat more because I work from home and I just keep wandering to the fridge. Right. If I'm actually doing something fun on the internet, I, I forget to eat. How much of your smartphone traffic, how much of your internet do you think happens over satellite? When you when you call somebody in Australia, oh, that's a good question. Do you think? I mean, surely you say to them like, "Wow, it's amazing that my signal is bouncing off a satellite and coming down to you in Australia at, in such short amount of time." And that would include even a text or an email to, to Australia, right? right? It, that's got that signal's got to get to them somewhere, even if it's not voice. And it happens almost instantaneously. Like you can sit and exchange texts with someone in Adelaide, and it happens. You know. Just as it would if you were across town. It was. I was hyper aware of this in the early '90s when I was assigned an email account by the University of Washington, and I I could email people on campus. I could email professors, and I was like, "Well, of course I can. They've built a thing here. Right? Uh, they built a thing on the college campus that lets me talk to this. And then even when I could talk to friends who were at uh, you know going to college back east, I would be like, "Oh, there's some kind of academic backbone that makes this possible. Good job, uh, CS departments everywhere. Right." And then I found out I could email my dad at work in Singapore. And that's he would wh- write back immediately. Yeah. And that well the fact that it would even go through, I'm thinking, wait, what is happening here? There's a there's some kind of computer network that can cross the Pacific Ocean. And at that point I was very aware that there was geography actually getting transited. And today I don't think about it for a second. No matter who I'm talking to, where. I'm just thinking, oh, I'm not, no no actual physical apparatus is carrying these packets to uh, France or New Zealand. You think it's just spooky action at a distance? Yeah, the internet is doing it. Yes. This, this spaceless, <laughs> this placeless place called the internet has brought me and New Zealand together and allowed this to happen like, um, like a wormhole or a, a tesseract. Sure. It's and in the cloud, which is actually a cloud. But that's not true. I'm I'm alighting the physical, whatever the physical process is that's moving those packets, and I just don't think about it. I don't. I don't even know what is it. Tell me what it is, John. Well, here's the thing: we often think about our cell networks, our uh, smartphones, as operating on a satellite-based yes uh, internet it, because because the signals are going into towers and from thence into the sky. Right, but in fact. of all internet traffic still goes by cable. Physical cables. Cables. Like phone lines. Cables that run from here in Seattle, out into the ocean, across the sea, to Australia, where it comes out of the sea and goes up to a cell phone tower and 
is broadcast to your friends. Think about the kind of the infrastructure complexity of just building a bridge or a highway. And we, we I think we talk and think about and celebrate that a lot. You yeah. know, look, look at this billion dollar project, you know, to build this new freeway or whatever. There's, there's human infrastructure literally crossing the ocean and we don't think or talk about it at all. It's like building a bridge to Hawaii. It is an extraordinary feat of human engineering. And, the you know, the way that it works, of course, is that— I don't know the way that it works. <laughs> like, like, so cables enter the sea somewhere? Like, you can just go to the beach and see a cable heading to, to Kamchatka or, or Korea? Yes. What? Yes. No. Yes. Yes. Cables are running all around the world— under the oceans and also under the ground. Uh, so you don't are, see them leaving the beach. You do. Oh, you do. You in fact do. No. Yes. In many places, you see them running across the beach and down into the ocean. I have a thousand questions. Have you ever seen one of these? <laughs> uh, I have never. I don't think I've ever looked at one and apprehended what it was. But um, but they're all around the earth. There's probably some some shoreline plant that just looks like water treatment or whatever that's actually right. sending and receiving cables. In many places, the cable entrance points are um, are heavily guarded, and there's fence around it, I and there's imagine. a building there, and there's a whole you know a whole system. You don't want some guy playing frisbee on the beach tripping over it and unplugging New Zealand. That's right. But there are also plenty of places on Earth where the cable comes out of the ocean, runs across the beach, and into a building um, because that's just, I mean, that the network at some level is that basic. And the, then the way, it, you know, the way it can work is that fiber optic cable is, um, you know, is transmitting information at the speed of light or very close to the speed of light. Cause it is literally just light shining in a tube, right? Light headed down a cable. And so um, if you were, if you, expected even a tiny, tiny fraction of the amount of information that travels around the world now to bounce off of satellites. There's just, there, there's no way that satellites could handle that much bandwidth and also that much sort of the latency of... Oh, they'd be slower. They'd be, they are quite a bit slower because there are still plenty of places that do use satellite to to transmit data like the cruise ship we were on a few weeks <laughs> right. ago, it doesn't work very well. And in fact, Antarctica but is. They were still charging thirty five dollars a day. They charge a hundred dollars for the for the for the privilege. I found out yikes. Uh, after using it without having fully vetted. <laughs> after after eleven cruises I've done, this was the first one that I ever just turned on my phone and was like, "Huh, I'll just give this a try." And then I got a message from AT and T like, "You've exceeded three hundred dollars in charges." Would you like to not have done that? And you could see how slow it was to have to send your, your email to space and back. Antarctica is the only continent left on the Earth that is not connected by cable. Oh, interesting. And so all the research stations there have to communicate with the world via satellite transmission. And it's very expensive and it's very choked off. But we dedicate a lot of satellite uh bandwidth to Antarctica because they're doing such important science. They're really there. lonely and they don't want their <laughs> porn to keep pausing to buffer. <laughs> that's right. It's not, it, it, I, no, it's not porn. It's, no. it's, uh, you it's, know, it's uh, Netflix. Yeah, that's right. Well, and, and Netflix has really changed the nature of, um, of the 
bandwidth issue because, of course, streaming video is a huge resource gobbler. Mm-hmm. Netflix has done a thing that is um, that is kind of a, a a somewhat recent development, and it's a it's a uh, it's a thing that's increasingly being used by internet service providers or internet content providers in order to cut down on this, uh, you know, this tremendous bandwidth usage that it would take for someone in France to stream, uh, you know, the matrix from a Netflix server in Utah. Mm-hmm. And that's a system they have called edging or edge. It's probably not edging. I doubt, I doubt it's edging. They probably don't uh, call it edging, but it, it's called edge, which is a kind of distributed method of storing, um, storing stuff that you know is going to get used. It's predictive, right? You know that uh, when Game of Thrones is released, that globally there's going to be a demand for it. And you can more or less, this is what all these algorithms that these companies are, are developing. Part of what they're doing is predicting demand. And then they can packetize that, uh, that video content and just send it once. No, they, they find, they build, they build like holding pens for that data. Little game of Thrones episodes bouncing around like cattle in a, in a feedlot. Right. So you know that you're, you know that there are going to be whatever, 250,000 people trying to stream game of Thrones in France on this day. Moo, I'm frozen too. (laughs) And and so I'm bird box. So there they so in France on that side of the cable they have a repository of that you know they're prepared to provide that much uh streaming in that locale and this is called an edge system and the more the more companies are able to predict the demand for their service right if you if it's eight o'clock in the morning somewhere you're going to have yeah. a, a demand for uh, there's going to be a demand for for all kinds of content that isn't there at three o'clock in the morning. There's probably a world where they can get it even more granular. They like can. they know if your household is likely to watch, the, you know, if you watched, if my son was home from school, all hypothetical, and instead of practicing the trumpet and working on his IB essay yesterday, let's say he was watching seven episodes of Seinfeld. Season, right. Let's se- just say. Season three. This is purely hypothetical. Sure. Uh, they probably know that my household is going to watch the next seven episodes of Seinfeld sometime in the near future, probably today, if he if he cleans his room. I don't think it's that granular yet. But it could be, right? But it could be, yeah. and, and, and absolutely will be at a certain point. Because, you know, this is how the power distribution network has been working for a long time. During Super Bowl, yeah. they're prepared for everybody to flush their toilet During or whatever. During the commercial. You know? uh, and, and so... And you could localize it to content. You could say France is going to watch Woody Allen movies. Right. Uh, England thinks he's a creep, so we know... Uh, where to where to start edging Woody Allen, and, and that's they, not a sentence I ever wanted to say. <laughs> they absolutely are doing that, right? Google is, yeah, Facebook. These companies are because they're collecting all this data. They're very conscious of where demand is and how it changes over time, and what things are going to put stresses on the system. And so, rather than send all of this across the oceans through these, you know, f- f- li- this limited system of fiber optic, they're starting to. Just to cut costs. I mean, the, it's the fiber optic is increasingly capable of communicating 
huge amounts of data. Is that right? Like the, we haven't hit capacity or we're laying new lines? So or? each, there is a, a, a real capacity problems. And over the course of time, uh, a lot of cables that are, would still be functional uh, become obsolete just because they're overloaded and they can't handle the capacity. But we keep building new cables that have greater capacity. The latest one is called Maria. It goes from Virginia Beach to Bilbao in Spain. They have names. Oh, they, each one of them have names, oh, and they're this. all they're all. Uh, some of them are just sort of database names, but a lot of them they sound like um, they sound like U.S. Army operations, you know. But or or hurricanes. There are a lot of them that have names. They're not. And, they're not all women's names. No, right? no, no. And okay. Maria isn't actually M A R I A. It's M E R E A. A lot of them are acronyms. Oh, okay. Um, but this uh, this new cable from Virginia Beach to Spain is capable of communicating a hundred and or communicating. It's a it's a pipe that uh, it's a tube, a series of tubes. Uh, it it um, it can transmit a hundred and sixty terabytes a second of data. I'm not good at big numbers, but that's a lot. That's a lot of 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 data, and this is you know this is one that they're very proud of. It's a it's a new one. That's state of the art right now. But um, but you know a lot of them uh, a lot of them like kind of the industry standard now is 35 terabits per second. So that gives you a sense of how what a what a jump 160 terabytes a second are. Only five years ago, um, nine terabytes a second was the you know the kind oh, of peak. Wow. So it's it's growing. Well, we know from the induced demand entry that uh, once the capacity is there, people will find ways to fill. You know, the video will get more high def, right. or you know, people will people will put more stuff through the pipe. Um, I, I've read recently, actually, in light of the recent global pandemic, that they're really worried about the capacity of the internet to handle all the video conferencing that's going to happen that wasn't happening before. Right, and you can see it now. I mean, uh, uh, the the number of people that are that are trying to get me to come onto some group phone call. Hey, nine of our friends are all getting together and we're all going to drink mimosas and talk to each other. And I'm like, that's worse than a phone call. Why would I do that? But I've (laughs) since the, uh, since the global pandemic, I've actually found myself on like four of these. I, I I don't enjoy them. My in-laws wanted us to all play board games over this. And I find it uh, less like, it's all the unpleasant aspects of a social situation in that I feel like I'm being surveilled with none of the good ones where I feel like I'm in a convivial, friendly space. Yeah, but, uh, but lots of people, and I think extroverts primarily, love it. Our yeah. neighbors were out on their deck last night. I was like, who are they talking to? And I looked out and they had a... They had their tablet up and they yeah. were having drinks with friends. Yeah, and like here, yeah, grandma's here and we had a birthday party over... Uh, one of these group video chats. Was this your daughter? Or yeah, her birthday was recently. And she <laughs> How had, did that go? Well, she had a couple of friends, a couple of nine-year-old girls, and then her grandparents and my sister. And it's like the nine-year-old girls don't want to be on here with somebody's grandparents, and no one wants to be on a video chat with a bunch of nine-year-old girls. So <laughs> I mean, and what I do is absent myself. I go into the kitchen and start making bacon, and um, that's but, what, that's what I did on board game night. My uh, my daughter has been watching movies in sync with her friends. You know, they'll That's crazy. They'll start Spy Kids game over at a certain time and then they'll video conference the whole thing. So this is you're you're absolutely right. This is induced demand and it will only continue to grow. And um 
And fiber optic cable is really the only medium that can handle this kind of traffic. But it scales. You just lay more fibers and, and more cables. Right? That's right. But it's never going to be I, – I, no one can foresee a time, I don't think, where a – at least at least in in um, in our lifetimes probably, where this will be handled more efficiently by any other system than by – than by physical cable laid across the ocean bottom. So if people we're speaking to in the distant future have some kind of global information network... It will be spooky action at a distance. It will be oh, they'll, they'll have quantum computing? I think they do. You can just poke a, a muon <laughs> here and a, a gluon in in Europe gets gets poked back, and, yeah. and that's how they get uh, Bojack Horseman? Yeah, it's going to be ones and zeros. Ones and zeros. Is... Uh, so can I ask? I don't want to derail this, but can oh, I ask a few basic questions? These things are running along the sea floor, they, yeah. Or do they do they float at some at some distance below the surface? No. Since the beginning of this technology, which happened in uh, surprisingly in the mid eight or mid nineteenth century, yeah, telegraph. The right. first telegraphic cable was. I mean, they 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 l- tried to lay telegraphic cable. Several times before they succeeded. I mean, that's often true when you're trying to lay something or someone. Boy, you're telling me. Uh, 1839 was kind of the the beginning of the telegraphic age, but it really wasn't until um, the 1860s that across the Atlantic there was a successful cable. The first the first ocean transoceanic cable went from England to France. Um, and what's the process like? Is it just I'm imagining a boat unspooling it from a big spool? That is the process. The, the and it just sinks. Well, and so, you don't have to actually. No human has to like install it where it lays. Like you, you, you basically you've let it go a, a miles away from where it's going to end up, and then crossing your fingers. Yeah, the deepest uh, the deepest trans or transoceanic cables are below eight thousand meters. Right. Um, in the early days, it was just a cable unspooling from. A steamship, um, as it as it ply the waters, and I think the the first one went from Newfoundland to um, to Ireland. Ireland that would that would probably be the closest distance. Yeah, and um, and it was just you know just laying on the ocean floor. the The early days that the, the um, there was a a problem which was that the ocean itself the 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 salt water created an impedance problem with the copper wire that was transmitting the electricity. Ah. It was the the wire itself wasn't overloaded. It was it was the electrical phenomenon of information traveling through this cable in in an environment that was that was electric electrically reactive. Salty copper is less conductive than regular copper. Right. And so, you know, you were getting this electrical bog and the solution was initially imagined to be we just need to send higher voltage through this. But the and uh, you start zapping octopuses? Well, the higher voltage it, it, um just created more electrical problems, right? Uh, it was not a it wasn't that the uh, there was a not enough voltage, it was that there was this um this electrical reaction. So in Increasingly, cable needed to be. I mean, it was recognized that this cable needed to be insulated first of all and protected from breakage. Um, in fact, the the there was a a kind of material science innovation. A, 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 a Malaysian tree that produced a sap called gutta percha. 
Oh yeah, and gutta percha, some early rubber like thing, right? Gutta percha was a was a um, a rubber, a, a a kind of rubber. You know, the problem with rubber is before it was vulcanized, you know, rubber wasn't stable. Yeah, it'd crack. And- but uh, gutta percha like naturally had a kind of like you could heat it and make it flexible, but then it would become rigid and resilient, kind of like bakelite or something. You know, it was a it was a, a a sap that became like a like a plastic. And this is before vulcanized rubber. You could yeah. do you could do vulcanization types properties. Before vulcanized rubber, gutta percha was discovered to have this, and it was electrically inert. And so, plus it's called gutta percha. It's called gutta percha, which is wonderful. And gutta percha has a lot of different industrial uses, and was was still a major industrial uh, material until the until the mid twentieth century. And it's still used in uh, in dentistry. If you get a root canal, they'll put gutta percha in there. I pro- you mean I have gutta percha in me right now? I think so. I'm, because I'm more gutta percha than man. Because gutta percha doesn't, you know, it doesn't react with, um, you know, the chemical composition of your mouth or the teeth or anything else. Huh. But gutta percha was a was an element that really allowed for an explosion in telegraphic cable because it could protect the cable and insulate it against, you know, against this electrical phenomenon. Can we talk about breakage? You mentioned it briefly. Or do you want, are you going to talk about breakage? Yeah. So breakage. Um, does that ever happen? A little, a little, some kind of crazy crab with a big claw? It does less so, of course, now than it did then. Um, you know, then you had, you know, you had the problem of it being copper cable yeah. wrapped in gutta percha. There were a lot of things that could cause it to break. The ocean is kind of divided into different regions and the region that's closest to the shore, you know, the first few miles off of the shore is the, is the region where we are extremely active in the ocean and on the seafloor. It's where we're fishing. It's where boats are anchoring. And so, but there's probably more life down there too, right? Well, that's why we're fishing there. Yeah. And so there's, you know, a lot of breakage that happens in that first oh, little you're section. You're talking about man-made breakage. Man-made breakage. You have it's not critters. You have like 38 percent of cable breakage is a result of fishing, Tr- bottom trawling. Um, things you know get snagged on cable and pull it up or or snap it. That's interesting. I'm imagining all the problems being in the very middle of the ocean where, where some kraken is is up to no good. But everything happens right by the beach. Yeah, twenty five percent of breakage just is people dropping anchors on the cable, <laughs> and so cable as it as it transits the oceans, uh, the area that's closest to shore is more reinforced. They they um, you know they really like protect it with many layers. Is there no way to tell boats, hey, you're in the cable zone? So or? there is. There are there are maps of all of the cables, you know, pretty detailed maps of all the cables that are running around the world. And those maps are made freely available, which we'll see creates a problem oh. uh, in a different... Geopolitically? That's right, in a different way. Hmm. Um, the actual cable that we use now, the um, the fiber optic cable... As it goes across the bottom of the ocean, it's only as big as a garden hose. Really? Yeah. I know how to make the bandwidth better, like two hoses. Well, and, uh, you know, it, when when you look inside the center of a fiber optic uh, oceanic cable, there are just eight fiber optic cables uh, in running in pairs huh. 
uh, one and they're directional. Like w- one cable has information going that way, and its pair has information coming back. And this so, reminds me of the what's the bridge in uh, Detroit that carries all of our trade? Like, imagine how much of the global economy is now within the the centimeter, two centimeter wide right. diameter of a garden hose. There's a lot of redundancy uh, where the demand is highest, but there's um, there's still many places in the Earth where there's only one cable. And in fact, in 2018, a single cable called the ACE cable, which is the Africa coast to Europe cable, um, is the sole provider of internet to 24 African countries. <laughs> and in 2018, it suffered a break that basically cut off internet to 11 of those countries what, what what happens is the ACE cable comes down the coast of Africa, and then each country along that west coast has a trunk cable that runs into their country, some of which just just run up the beach. Huh. And, um, and so a break that happened off the coast of Mauritania uh, just severed connection to— For dozens uh, of countries. For, for a dozen countries at least. Wow. So there are still many places in this system, this global system, that are extremely vulnerable. As far as the, the, the origins of this system go, as soon as it was, you know, the, and, and it started to become a, a reliable, like the first reliable cable across the Atlantic came right after the Civil War. So, or, you know, toward the end of the Civil War. So you had this this sudden explosion of of, of an ability to communicate in real time or effectively in real time. You know, what had formerly been a week's-long transit and then a week's-long return uh, now was you could could text London and London would text you back. It's funny that it went down from two weeks to instantaneous overnight and then has pretty much stayed instantaneous ever since then. We we solved the problem. Not completely instantaneous, right? It was an electrical uh, connection at first uh, for many years. But effectively. Effectively. It's gone from – you're right. It's gone from a minute to a second or a fraction of a second. But But it really changed the nature of the world. And and for the next century, the undisputed leader of – undersea cables and a, and a kind of global network of cables was the British Empire. The um, These the were Br- publicly owned? These were government cables? The British Empire recognized that, and this, the Victorian era, was the height of their colonial empire. And they needed an ability to connect all of that colonial, all those colonial territories via telegraph. Because, they're, you know, in... in the early part of the 19th century and in the 18th century, you had colonial governors in all these far-flung locales who basically were not. Uh, they were doing their own. They thing. were doing their own thing, and They're they beholden they, to no one. They were. They, it took months to get some dispatch from the home office, and that's true of every empire in history. You know, even you know the Roman Empire wasn't distributed like that, but communication speeds meant. The same problem, right? And but, so, so your local, you know, your local governor became a real poobah. But now, for the first time, you can treat an empire like a city. 
Right. And what you found was diplomacy and the the role of ambassadors and emissaries really changed. It became much more of a bureaucratic position. You were you know, if you had a question, you sent the question home and you got the answer back. Oh, that's interesting. Rather than than being there as a kind of ambassadors were decision makers. They were. And now they're just big campaign donors. They represented the they represented the crown with their own judgment. Judgment. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of went away, but the but the 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 United Kingdom recognized, or Britain at the time recognized that they needed to have an independent network because they didn't want it to be, they didn't want their communications with their territories to be beholden to other nations. Somebody else could turn off the tap, and so they built a system called the Red Line, and it was called the Red Line because British territories were typically represented. By the color red in their yeah, uh, in map the coloration. Map, yeah, the map. Yeah, uh, they built a red line that went from uh, the UK to Canada, and then very famously, uh, a line that was only uh, only completed in. I mean, this is during a period of the late uh, the late nineteenth century. Uh, they they were connected to Australia by eighteen seventy one, but it was through a very convoluted route. Um, they started to work on a cable that went from Canada to Australia, and they found in the middle an island called Fanning Island, which was a— This is somewhere in the Pacific? Yeah, in the South Pacific that was an uninhabited island. And uh, the, the British Empire coveted this island. It didn't, you know, it didn't belong to them. And they worked very hard to annex it just because they wanted to build a repeater station there— mm to connect this Canada to Australia line. And eventually they did. And eventually the red line, you know, by the period before world war one had become this, this global network that was not accessible to, if you, you know, if, if you in the United States wanted to telegraph to, um, to Australia, you know, your, your information would go through Japan and down, whereas... Did other countries build their own proprietary lines as well? Well, so this was such an expensive process that most of the lines were built by consortia. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of companies would get together and all pool their resources and then have proportional ownership of the bandwidth of these lines. And a lot of a lot of them were speculators, you know, uh, Public-private partnerships. Does that mean governments are at the mercy of these consortia? Well, at the time, governments had, uh, well, they had a lot more power, right? And they had regulatory power. Um, but these were sort of national national security uh, issues, too. Mm-hmm. During World War, at the very beginning of World War One, the first thing the British did in response to that declaration of war was to immediately cut all of the telegraph lines running in and out of Germany. Which they could do. They could do because there were not because they didn't have redundancy. So, and these are these are not their lines that they're turning off the tap. They're they're cutting off Germany's own. They're cutting lines off Germany's as, lines as an act of war. As an act of war. How do you do it? You go down. You, you go, go mean, to the beach. What well, you go to the beach? I mean, basically, you know where the cable comes out, and so you go down. You know, you you figure out how far down you can go. It's frogmen, and you go down. You know, with little submersibles and get to that cable, and or you know, I think what probably they did then was drop a hook or an anchor and grab it, 
and either break it at the seafloor or pull it up and it's like some it. carnival fishing game but throughout the rest of world war 1 germany was unable to communicate with its territories or with the rest of the world they were trying to surrender for 3 years <laughs> and nobody nobody knew they were waving a white flag <laughs> Uh, whereas England had, because it had built this network and because it had this redundancy, was able to communicate with, with all of its empire. And that was, you know, right at the height of the empire. So, so Great Britain, can, and I'm using Great Britain, the United Kingdom, and England all somewhat interchangeably because, you know. It's, that's allowed. That's, that's our way. I had some <laughs> pedant come at me on the internet yesterday for saying Britain is a country. Britain's not a country. It's an island. And I said, actually... Britain is metonymous for the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, as the dictionary says. Harumph, harumph. You know the dictionary, and that's well, one of the things I admire I just about have you. one on my shelf, and I can reach for when somebody's being a dick. Why don't they do it first? <laughs> Putting the dick back in dictionary. <laughs> um, these, uh, these cables and this, you know, this kind of, uh, like, British hegemony over the system— Really lasted until uh, the you know until after World War One until the mid twentieth century. The same um, time that they declined in every other front, right? And and this was a, an area right where American industrialism um, yeah, really I, expanded. I assume America was also laying its own cable. It was, and and you know when we had the industrial capacity to just take over the world, you know this this cable. Initially, telegraph cable, and then in the 1950s, we started to be able to uh, lay phone cable, and it was a you know a, right a completely next level of of communication. Uh, the first kind of phone cables started to get laid down in the mid 50s, and by the 60s, I mean I think you can recall a time when you could make a long distance phone call to somebody in France, and it was scratchy and patchy and very expensive. But it felt like a miracle that you could, you know, and a lot of them had echoes and, and tons of lag. But hello, are you there? Hello, I'm here. You yeah, know, you could really hear the difference in sound quality. Yeah, that an undersea cable gave you. But this was a this was a, a completely new kind of cabling, and we had to then build a whole new system of phone cables, laying these cables all across. I just the ocean. can't get over the manufacturing problem of having to build an item that's. Thousands of miles long. Right. That's got to be, that's got to have its own challenges that you just don't have to think about in any other arena because nobody builds things that are a thousand miles long. Uh, well, or, or 3,000 miles, three, 4,000 miles long, 5,000 miles. I guess you can just, it's like Christmas lights. You can just do a series of cords. You, you just, do. You leave a cord floating at the end and you send the boat back to get the next reel. Well, no, if you can imagine these ships having a reel that has. Is the reel the full length? You don't have to do it in stages? Uh, I think in the no, I think the reel is the full length. Wow. I mean, certainly now it is. Yeah. We have these giant trawlers that have huge spools. That um, that I mean, the in manufacturing the spool, obviously, like things are spliced. But by the time, and there are splices, quite a few, right? There are electrical repeaters that it's not just cord uh, that sit down at the bottom of the ocean that connect, you know, c cable that allow this. Um, Amplification of the system over over the course of these long they runs. Must, they must need power. They must. So the power is within the cable. So yeah. so currently the cable is a very multi layered thing. At the at the very core of it 
is this fiber optic cable, which is a you know, which is the width of a human hair. And then that's surrounded by a sort of polycarbonate, um, you know, layer of insulation, and then a, a, a layer of aluminum, which waterproofs the fiber optics. Mm. Over the course of that is a steel strand, like you would see any any piece of steel cabling that's just there for for uh, strength and support. And then over that, that steel strand is wrapped in mylar tape. And over that, the whole cable is covered with a layer of delicious dark chocolate. That's right. And then over that dark chocolate and then a cherry and then nuts. (laughs) Tar, huh? Tar to just, you know, it's just, it's flexible and it's insulating and it's waterproof. Uh, So when you look at this, but I mean, like I say, it's, it it really does look like a garden hose. Um, And that's, so fiber optic technology, I mean, after, after phones had their reign it was only really in 1988 um, that fiber optics started to, you know, the first fiber optic cable started to be laid. I remember it as an advertising point of pride when different uh, telecom companies would start to brag about their new fiber optic technology, which I guess nobody had had before then. So yeah, the, and it was the customers were meant to be aware of how space age this was, and and the initially the bandwidth was really choked. I mean, oh, you couldn't. Right? I mean, well, here, I mean, fiber optic cable was also being used because this cabling isn't just undersea. I mean, if yeah. you're communicating with San Francisco, there's fiber optic cable from here to there, and you remember I mean, how long it took to send a, to send a photograph, um, even in recent memory. Yeah, I, I remember dial-up internet. I remember not being able to use my phone line because my roommate was playing his multi-user dungeon or whatever. <laughs> right. 12, 18 hours a day. We see the problem of your dependence on these these connections and the vulnerability that that entails by this story of... of, of um, West Africa? Well, of, of West Africa in recent times and in Germany in, yes. in uh, World War One. Yeah, so are they still... if? You know, the fact that it's the width of a garden hose makes me think this has got to be the target for, you know, not just acts of sabotage, but also maybe espionage. So in, in the Cold War era, uh, the, the kind of first incidence of this was a, um, was a communications cable that ran between Russia and, and a, you know, a, it was a direct line between Russia and one of its military bases. And they... We're using a kind of encryption to the information, but it was a very, very weak encryption because they it was, felt like it was Pig Latin. It, because they felt like they yeah, like, it was just uh, a series of claps. Nikita Ne Ushchev Kray uh, <laughs> is a eighth grade. Uh, they figured because it was a closed system that they were safe. But sure. the U, uh, United States sent down a submarine called the the USS Halibut, and <laughs> it was able to tap into this cable. They they weren't able to receive that information in real time. The halibut had to go back to where they'd tapped it to recover. To collect the, the like they just plugged in a thumb drive or something. <laughs> well, they had probably a a reel to reel tape player. Oh, gosh, and they had to go down periodically and get this tape. And Are all of our subs named for food fish? I would love that. The yeah, the swordfish just, and just the, to be aboard the mahi mahi. No, um, unfortunately, there you know a lot of them are named after. I was on a, a submarine that was named after a Medal of Honor winner. I mean, posthumously, so. I don't know. Navy SEAL It doesn't guy. seem that great. No. Like, because he's not famous. I mean, I get that it's a nice tribute to him, but. I forget whether that was a submarine or 
I think that might have been a guided missile frigate. I've been on so many Navy ships in my day. You know. You know how it is. Yeah. But espionage became a real issue because the the Soviet Union also started to tap undersea cables. Uh, in recent years, espionage is a component of it, but also the real danger that you have of just someone cutting your cables. In order to attack the United States or Western Europe with, with cable cutting, it's no longer practical, right? There's so many, of them so much redundancy that even if you cut, even if somehow you manage to cut every cable across the Atlantic Ocean, we would just send the traffic the other way and it might, you know, there might be a bog, but you could send all that information from, you know, to Japan and over. Um, so, but recently Russia has been suspiciously monitoring or suspiciously like lurking around all this undersea cable. Uh, they're going to steal our cables. Who knows what they're, yeah, they're, they, they're, they just want HBO. They're taking all those Netflix, uh, you know, like stranger things debuts <laughs> in answer to an earlier question that you had about how these cables go across the, the ocean floor. The technology has improved over time so that now, you know, as we mapped the ocean floor, we had a better and better sense of which routes cable could take and not have to span canyons. Right, that's what I'm thinking. Like, yeah. if you've got rift valleys under there. And so, once we started mapping the ocean floor, we saw that there were actually some preferred routes and a lot of routes that that were much more prone to failure. So, some of those... Uh, some of those locations where all the cables come up out of the ocean, a lot of cables all come up in the same place because they all kind of took the same route across the sea. Mm -hmm. Cables often cross each other underwater and the place where they cross is noted and, and sort of protected. The cables are protected from one another. Now cable laying ships actually tow little plows and the plow Lay it cuts a little channel like with a groove in the seafloor with water with high pressure water. What drops the cable in it and then covers it over, and they pull this little plow all the way across the ocean. I want to see that little guy. It's a great little guy. It, you most of the m- most of the video you see of it is uh, is like digital. Um, it's, animation. It's fake. Yeah, and then they have little robots that they can pull. Across that, you know, that um, where if there is a break, they can they can fix the break kind of locally. There's with, a there's a creature in the Disney Alice in Wonderland who leaves footprints on with feet on one end of it, and then on its nose, it's got a, a brush that it's using to erase the footprints from its front end. Right. That's exactly what you need on it's, these on these ships. It's basically Mr. Plow. That's basically what they have, and these ships are these ships are plying the ocean all the time. There there is. There is a real sense that the United States now controls too much mm. of the bandwidth. And I, I when like um, if we were ever to have some autocratic president, I'm not saying we ever yeah, do or would, but what if that were to happen? He could he could shut down Western Europe. When Edward Snowden revealed all that American espionage in that great data dump a few years ago, nations around the world were horrified. Uh, at the degree to which the United States was monitoring their, uh, well, all their transactions, 
through our control over the cables. And so... Because we had said, we promise not to do that. Right. And so now, uh, you know, nations of the world are beginning to build their own proprietary uh, cables. Like there's one in uh, from Brazil to Portugal uh, because these countries were... were they finally recognized that the U.S. was not sort of honor, honoring a neutrality. No, I don't want to say you have not mentioned the ICPC, the titular organization, but I don't think well, – we've been talking for quite a while, and you have not mentioned the International Cable Protection Committee. No, I haven't. The International Cable Pro- – what, what does this committee do? So in the, in the 1950s, there was a, a – you know, a, now – Telephone was telephone cable was being laid around the world, and there was an acknowledgement that there needed to be an international governing body that regulated the cable network, which was you, you don't want a telephony hegemony. You do not want a telephony hegemony, and also this was an era of the United Nations and mm, a time yeah. when it was when the the world was first perceived as a kind of global. One world, one people. There was a lot of idealism at this point, even though it was it was really like a tense period in the Cold War. And so, uh, an initial sort of um, governing organization that included a lot of nations of the world that were being covered by this network, called the Cable Damage Committee, was formed in order to. It's a good band name. <laughs> the Cable Damage Committee is a great like hey ho kind of band. <laughs> yeah. The Tennessee Valley Authority and the Cable Damage Committee was just there to preserve the integrity of the system, but also it was you know a bureaucratic organization like the United Nations that that sought to have uh, a cooperative kind of um, could arbitrate disputes between that's right yeah. and and maintain the system as a as a sort of a, a neutral a shared and thing shared. World, like whole. we do with Antarctica now or space, right? Um, and then I think in the '60s they changed the name of that group to the International Cable Protection Committee, kind of just to I think take the word "damage" out and and put the word "protection" in and let a punk band use it. Uh, that's right, and then free up Cable Damage Committee uh, dot com for right. for some uh, for a cooler use, uh, and the International Cable Protection Committee became a sort of burdensome and powerless uh, organization that did not really have much authority, although not much authority was needed. I guess less and less maintenance needs means you don't need these guys anymore. Plus governments are getting more and more protective probably. Right. And, and, uh, and the international aspect of it um, started to, be less and less applicable as these cables became uh, consortium products that they were being laid not by governments but by uh, groups of of for profit businesses who were laying these cables in order to sell the sell the bandwidth, and that had always been that had always been a component of it. It was always obviously a uh, for capitalist profit. enterprise, yeah. but um, but increasingly, uh, companies had the ability to restrict bandwidth. There were other options; they didn't have monopolies, and so uh, so being able to control how how those cables were um, apportioned no longer 
made them susceptible to anti-monopoly legislation. And so they started to be able to kind of regulate their own uh, – the the traffic in their privately owned cables. And maybe this is a sidebar, but are there still private cables? Does, will like AT&T have its own cable or is, well, it, or is it still consortia who share use of the bandwidth? So just recently, this became a new fashion in – internet content providers that they are beginning to lay their own private cable. Let us curate your experience with this new high-grade fiber optic cable. That's right. Um, Google and Microsoft and Facebook and Apple and Amazon, uh, that group of five companies. Together, not together, uh, represent 70% of all global internet traffic. Yeah, I don't have any monopoly fears about any of those companies. No, so this is perfect. They're all fine. And and they're increasingly developing technology like self-driving cars and, you know, uh streaming video and all all this stuff where they're anthrax. They are perceiving, you know, or whatever these stupid Zoom conferences are. <laughs> they they recognize that bandwidth is the is you know, a major component. I mean, self-driving cars think about the bandwidth that those are going to require. Right. Um and so in order to maintain their kind of business hegemony, they need to control – they feel like they need to control the cables themselves because otherwise, you know, they, they're at the mercy of whoever it is that can shut off the tap. So um, there are 35 new cables currently being, uh, you know, either in in development or are in the process of being – strung around the world by a private company each by either either each one owning these company or owning these cables or owning them in partnership like Facebook and Microsoft are building a cable together um, there are there are a, a narrower, Boy, a old, narrower. Old people are going to hate life if anything <laughs> happens to that one. Watch out! Your, watch out for your anchors, or grandma's going to get mad. You know, nations are less and less driving the production of these cables or the 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 uh, sure. construction of these cables. They're profitable now. They're not infrastructure. And and to have you know to have your own guaranteed sort of Facebook portal gives Facebook a tremendous uh, you know competitive advantage. Over, for instance, Netflix, who has figured out using this edge technology that doesn't make sense for them to lay their own cable, although they're taking up a huge amount of bandwidth globally uh, by by predictive science, they can uh, they can make it on you know like superfluous or rather unnecessary that they have their own and they don't have cable. Any- plan to own a fleet of a billion drones or nanobots or whatever. It doesn't seem like Yet. they are in development to, yeah, to build transportation systems or surveillance systems. They're just, uh, it's, well, and it's a crucial aspect, a crucial difference of Netflix is that it is a one-way transmission. Mm, that's true. Right? You never talk back to Netflix. Sometimes I do. I'm you like, bastards! Why do I have to keep using this stupid well, interface? Why did you cancel Tuca and Birdie? Whereas you know Facebook and Google, these are these are transactional websites. Amazon, I mean, you're, uh, the traffic is going back and forth. And although it uh, although algorithms do allow them to predict when the demand for bandwidth is going to be higher, um, it's you know it's it's not like 
Stranger Things. What about the moment when they predict what bandwidth is going to be? They, they, they won't need users at all. Once the internet gets so sophisticated that it can tell what I'm, gonna, what I'm about to text back. Right. It'll I'm, just text back on your behalf. Yeah, I'm obsolete. And then you won't need even the cables anymore because the, the processors could be working in parallel. Like the thing in New Zealand is going to know what I was about to tell my friend in New Zealand. And I can, I can sit back in my chair and put my hands behind my head and take it easy. That's what ha- that is basically what's happening to the International Cable Protection Committee. Um, they're not going to have any authority over what Facebook does with its privately owned trans-global cable. Good. And, and I just learned about these bureaucrats, but I'm already sick of them. Put them, put them out to pasture, John. The one risk that all these um, that all these cables have that you can't really account for are um, sawfish from those cartoons that have the saw noses. You, you're not far off. Uh, Wait, really? There, there are tons of undersea events. Like during the the Japanese earthquake in 2011, there were a lot of landslides that actually snapped a bunch of cables and cut uh, cut internet service for a while. But there there were plenty of redundancies. It just kind of slowed it down. Can you ever repair the thing? You can. You can. You don't have to lay a new one. You can send somebody to the side of the eruption or whatever. These ships go down, and you know they start at one end uh, where the thing ran up on the beach, and they pull it up, and they find the other end, and they they can graft them back together. but uh, and this accounts for a uh, a fraction of the times that cables have been cut or damaged. But whales will often f- discover these cables and use them to scrape barnacles off of their backs. The whale will go and and like a satisfying back scratch. Yeah, just like hey, what's this cool thing? Rugger, 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 rugger. I love this mental picture. There, there was a, a one incident where a whale, in using the cable to scratch his back, got his tail tangled in it and drowned. Aww. And then the cable stopped working, and they had to pull the cable up. But and then they discovered why because this because this whale was attached to the cable, <laughs> and it was you know deep deep in the ocean. Pulling the cable up was really hard, and they couldn't figure it out. Why is it so hard to pull up? And then they found this whale. But uh, but there have been documented incidents, and even there's video of uh, a cable laying machine putting cable down. And and now with these with these machines that bury the cable, it's less of a problem. But this cable machine was this little bar, you know, this little sled was laying cable, and it videoed a uh, a shark swam over to the cable, kind of examined it in the wake of this machine, and then just chomped on it <laughs> super hard. No one can figure out why. They've done studies to see if the electrical field around cables influences sea life right, or it has attracts any it or annoys it. Yeah, any kind of uh, negative effect or any effect at all. And yeah. they they haven't, you know, I think they can demonstrate that it doesn't affect the sea life Com- around. Compared it. to all the other stuff we're doing acoustically to, and and uh, environmentally to the ocean. Right. This th- is, these are pretty inert. This is a small matter, but it does for some reason attract the affection of sharks. Well, can we just maybe drop a bunch of back scratchers for the, with the cables I, so the whales and sharks have something to do? I think this is something that... The like, co- like when restaurants have little uh, fun things to distract your kids? Yeah, it's a, it's a thing that maybe the Cousteau Society should have determined uh, a need for. We don't think about all the ways that maybe we're helping sea life by, by dropping uh, used hypodermic needles and old, old cans. 
who knows what they're doing? The whales are like, wow, more cans. Well, what if they just put like a USB port every 500 feet? Let the whales watch Stranger Things. I think the Soviets would would uh, would take all our Stranger Things. <sighs> we can't have the Soviets taking our Stranger Things. Mm-mm. And that concludes the International Cable Protection Committee, entry 654.IS4316, certificate number 34332, in the omnibus. Now, some of the things going through these cables are, uh, in our era, are omnibus-related content, and that's prioritized. <laughs> it by is. the way, those packets get first bi- uh, dibs. Hot packets. <laughs> Hot packets coming through. All the other little internet uh, beats and bites and bits have to step out of the way. Here comes omnibus. When uh, we, r- we drop a new episode or when uh, at Omnibus Project uh, on social media announces new content or mm-hmm. at John Roderick puts up photos of his uh, leisure wear and you can't do funny signs around town anymore. Yeah, no, I can't. You can't leave your house, but you can continue to, uh, to antagonize libertarians and, and Donald Trump's son uh, Um, with your hilarious tweets at Ken Jennings. Yeah. Those are going to go through until, until the U S government shuts down (laughs) that cable. Uh, You can, uh, if you want to avoid the cable entirely, you can use the U S postal service, send us, your goods and services at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I don't know how they would send services. Send us your services and we'll find out. It can be a little card that says good for one car wash or whatever. <laughs> like when, when my daughter gives me like cards for a hug or yeah, something. Yeah, this is good for a hug. Send us those. She doesn't do that anymore. She doesn't. No, she's a teen now. She's a teen. Uh, we receive Patreon donations. That's a good use of the internet yeah, at patreon.com slash omnibus project. If you have the enjoy the show and you have the wherewithal to support it, uh, it keeps the show going. You can also congregate with like-minded listeners at, uh, the futurelings groups on Reddit or Facebook or discord. You can even uh, send us electronic mail. That's a very efficient use. It's a wonderful use. Of the of the cables. It doesn't require any uh, streaming video. It can come at any time. Half the time, we don't check it for a few days. A lot so. of latency there. It's, yeah. it's pretty much like... Uh, send it by satellite. It's pre-telegraph era technology because it, we, we use edging. <laughs> they, they all collect for a month or two in a big holding pen. Pony Express. And then I go through them. Yeah. Uh, but you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You know, I should uh, I should mention that the fact that these cables are physical, you know, it's a physical in- infrastructure. This is uh, th- uh, you made a joke about the um, the political administration like closing off your Twitter account, but the reason that China can restrict one of the reasons China can restrict information there is that they actually hold the cable. Um, if it was just coming down from the sky, it would be much harder to scramble or or limit. And all kinds of it's it's increasingly a political strategy. Does that mean off the grid people are trying to use satellite internet alternatives? Or uh, well, I mean off the political people who are you know dissidents or activists. That still remains extremely expensive. You know, a satellite phone. You can still own a satellite phone, but it's not a it's not cheap and it's not easy. Right. Um, despotic governments will actually cut the cable and cutting cables is now a kind of terrorist tactic or, or cables have been cut for political reasons or like watch the world burn reasons. 
So, supervillains. Supervillains. I should also say that calling this episode International Cable Protection Committee um, was just a conceit. It's a great name. I should have called it the Cable Damage Committee because that's like a killer band name, as you say, and a great name for an episode. Although this episode was only barely about the International Cable Protection Committee. I think people are used to that by now. Yeah. I maybe, you know, this could have been the first episode where I didn't even mention the title. Um, I was wondering if I should help you out. But, you know, that's just how it goes. Micromanager. Nanny state. (laughs) Futurelinks, from our vantage point in your distant past, when we still used fiber optic before we got to quantum communication, uh, we have no idea how long our civilization survived and how long these cables persisted after we were gone. You may be scratching your backs on them right now. Yeah, you're welcome. Glad we could help. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. In the and, meantime, enjoy the gutta percha. Uh, well, yeah, that's right. Delicious gutta percha. That might be mm. that might be why the shark was biting on it. Like, hmm, finally, gutta percha. If I was a fish, I would stay away from gutta percha. It sounds like fish fish on fish violence. Gutta percha. To, oh, to hmm, gutta percha. Interesting. You take it. Yeah, that's an Italian guy. Cut making, its gut out. That's an Italian guy making uh, making some kind of seafood. Uh, uh, linguini. You put a little lemon on You go to the perch. Uh, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. The last thing that went across the internet before the cataclysm. Hope not. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.